we are testing my volume. We are testing my volume. Can everybody hear me okay? We are testing my volume. I'll turn this off here. Can everybody hear me okay? I think we're good. I think we're good. Okay, Ashley's gonna head downstairs. This is a little different. Okay, I think there are people watching. I'm gonna give it another minute or two. Got our painter's tape. Got our rig set up this morning. Um, welcome to my house. Yeah, I felt like this was a little bit easier than going to the church. Um, and so we're in our warm homes this morning. Did not see this coming. You can hear me. I'm not seeing any comments. I'm going to give it another minute or two. Hi, Diane Price. <clears throat> Elizabeth Fraley Hogue and Stefan. And... Okay, good. You can hear me. That's good. I don't know. I'm going to give it another minute. Looks like it's raining outside, so we are glad we uh, stayed home this morning. Okay, good. Everyone's saying you can hear me. Good. Hello, Denise. What a world we live in. <laughs> Let me turn off my volume here on my computer. Okay. All right. Another second or two. <clears throat> this is my house. My three kids and my two dogs and my lovely wife are hunkering down in the basement quietly. But if you hear some noise, well, that's what you're going to hear. Uh, but we are, we're happy to be able to be together. I mean, what a gift this is to have technology and to be able to still open up God's Word together. This is um, not what we were expecting. We had five baptisms planned this morning, uh, and and but we will do those again. And so we're just grateful that we can use Facebook and live stream to meet. Um, how about I pray and then we'll start our sermon this morning. Father, thank you for today. What a gift this is to be able to meet. It doesn't feel like we're meeting in some ways. I'm alone in a room, but, um, but we can because of technology and we're thankful that 
in our homes and on our computers and our phones that we can still open up your word, that we don't have to be face to face to to read your word and to study and to think. And so, God, I am I'm thankful for that. That's a gift. That's a gift of technology that you've given us. And I pray that this morning as we walk through first Peter, as we open up your book and we really think about your word, God, I pray that you'd help us to focus. I know we have lots of things going on. Our uh, kids potentially are around us and things going on outside and things that we are expecting for the week ahead. And I pray that for these next few moments that we can read your word together, that even though we're not together in person, that, that your spirit could still work and encourage and challenge us as we think about your word. This is such a important book. It's such a helpful book. And God, so we, we really want to hear from you this morning um, as we read First Peter. Help me. This is different for me. I, I don't know that I like this as much as being together. So help me and my words to be clear and to, um, to be effective as I share your word today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, I think we're still still working. I just all I'm looking at is a camera, so I'm I'm assuming we're together. Uh, we are starting a new series this morning on First Peter, and so it's going to be really helpful if you grab a Bible. We don't have slides today, uh, but if you could turn in your Bible way back in the back to First Peter, um, and we're going to be in Peter for a while. Um, you know, when I teach a book, I like to teach slowly methodically, uh, really looking at the words. And so that means we don't get through books very fast. It means that we don't skip hard passages from a book, that we walk through the whole thing. Um, and so we'll probably be in First Peter all the way up to Easter. Uh, but it's exciting. It's so good to slowly read and to really think about what is Peter telling these churches and, and what is he telling us. And so when you when you read a book or study a book slowly, it's tempting or what could happen is, is that there are times that you could miss kind of the big picture of the book. And so we don't want to miss the big picture. We don't want to get so lost in the details that we don't see what Peter's doing as a whole or the forest, if you will, um, and not get stuck just on the trees, but that we see the whole forest. And so for, for us, as we kind of jump into First Peter, I think it's helpful to kind of see the, the big picture. What is Peter, what is Peter doing? What's the, the whole book kind of pointing towards um, so that we don't get lost? So Peter's writing to five different churches. You'll see in verse one, Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, these are churches that would probably five different geographic areas in Turkey, what we know today is Turkey, 60 years after the death of Jesus. And Peter's writing these letters, this, this letter, and he's, he's essentially telling them, read this letter, study this letter, and then I need you to take it to the next church. Um, but what is this letter all about? Peter wants to help us, wants to help these church members how to know how to handle suffering and tragedies and trials. Okay, Peter's writing this letter, to these believers, and he wants to show them and he wants to teach them how they can handle tragedies and suffering 
and trials. I mean, what a what a great book for us today as I was kind of reading it through and thinking through this big picture, the forest of the whole book, kind of seeing this reoccurring theme of suffering and tragedies and trials and temptation. And I just thought, what what a book for us in 2022, for where we are, where you might be, that we get to read a book that is so perfectly applicable to us as we think through how how can we handle tragedy and trials. And so I want you to be excited. I want you to be ready to learn that, that we can learn how to face things uh, by reading this book written to these five different churches many years ago. And so one of the themes that kind of kept coming up, kind of the word that described uh, these tragedies and trials, the word that shows up a couple times is the word fire. First Peter 1, 6 through 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Your faith is tested by fire. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. And so that's kind of the word that I'm going to use to kind of capture the trials, the tragedies, and the suffering that we face. It's the word Peter uses. We will walk through fire. And as I was thinking about this, you know, what Peter said in verse 6, the verse that I read in chapter 1, says you're going to be grieved by various trials. So different types of fire are going to be coming your way. You're going to be faced with. And so the question is, how how are you going to handle these various types of fire? And so as I was thinking about that concept, um, various fires, I wanted to look kind of look through first Peter. What are what are specifically the various types of fire? Peter teaches these churches about. And so I want to just list a few of those fires specifically that Peter is telling them. These are things you're going to face and you've got to learn how to handle. So just quickly, the first fire that Peter tells them, it is the, it is the fire of exile. Look at 1 Peter 1, 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. This is what we talked about last week. These people are exiled. Now, there's a couple ways that this word is used in the New Testament. I mean, it could refer to Jewish people dispersed outside of Jerusalem and outside of Israel. So it is a physical, literal exile. But we don't think that's what that's what Peter is saying here. Peter is, is writing to Gentiles. He's not writing to Jewish people churches. He's writing to Gentile churches, and we know that through reading this letter. It is clear that the background of these people in these churches are Gentile, Gentile backgrounds. And so we, we do think Peter's writing not to physical exile, but the exile that we talked about last week in Jeremiah 29. This is, this is spiritual exile. In other words, we are foreigners, we are strangers, and we live in a hostile culture that doesn't care about God. I think the, the verse, and, and we'll, we'll talk about this as we walk through the book, but I thought, let me give the big picture of the fires that we face. 
And then we'll see how first the first couple of verses speak to this. And so one of those fires is exile. We, we don't fit in this world. Look at 1 Peter 4, 3 through 4. It says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. This is exile. You aren't doing what the Gentiles and the world does and you are not received. And the word that that Peter uses is you are maligned. You are castigated and put to the side. You are not welcomed. You are insulted and you are for these churches persecuted. But I think even though we may not feel physical persecution, like we said last week, we live in exile today. And what Peter is saying, this is a fire that you will walk through. And even today, we, we recognize that, that we are not followers of Jesus. We are not the majority. And that we're not received and that our beliefs about marriage and gender and life, they're, they're not received and welcomed. And, and so the world, the Gentiles, are we're maligned today. And so what Peter is saying is this is a fire, and we've got to learn how to handle this fire. We've got to learn how to walk through this fire. But it's not just the fire of exile. He talks about a completely different fire or uh, trial that they're going to walk through. It's the fire of temptation. Look at 1 Peter 2, 11. Says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So it's not just a it's not just a spiritual exile, it's an exile from within, a fire from within. We we struggle, we walk through this battle, or the, the, the metaphor that Peter uses, there's a waging war inside of us. This is, our, this is a war of our passions. This is a war of our flesh. Paul talks about this. This is our flesh, our corrupt desires. And so Peter writes a lot about the passions of the flesh, this fire that we walk through. And what Peter is saying is, this is one, this is one of the things that you're going to face and you need to learn how to fight up, up against your appetites and your instincts, and your desire for self-gratification, your desire for control and pleasure, your desire for yourself. But this is a fire that you have to learn to handle. And if we look to the world, what does the world says? There's nothing to fight here. There is no war. There is no fire to avoid. You live and you embrace these internal desires. You pursue them. I was reading about a story that I had not heard about this week, the story about Woody Allen in the 1980s. Maybe you know the, the story of the affair that he had in the, in the 80s. He's a, he's a director, he's a comedian, and he hit all the tabloids when he had an affair with Mia Farrow. And um, what, what happened, or what the story really was about, was that after about 10 years of his relationship with Mia, it came out that... Um, he had started a relationship with his stepdaughter. So she had adopted 
um, adopted a daughter in a, in a previous marriage, and Woody had had gotten into a relationship with her. He was 56 and she was 21, and it was it was a giant scandal um, that hit all the tabloids and newspapers, and it was it was an ugly mess. From everything that I read about this story, um, it was it was not pretty at all. But there was a there was an interview that I thought was really interesting at the end near kind of the end of the story by Walter Isaacson. Maybe you remember the, the interview. It was pr- pretty famous. And Walter Isaacson is interviewing Woody Allen. And, and he is giving Woody every opportunity to see what he has done, starting a relationship with, with for all intents and purposes, his stepdaughter, a 21-year-old, while he was married, and, and he's giving him the opportunity to, to regret it, to apologize, to see what was wrong, the immorality in what he's done. And here's how Woody responded. I mean, he, he refused. He refused it through the whole interview. He was adamant that he was right. And it was the very last line of the interview that kind of became a famous uh, saying from, from this time. He says this, The heart wants what it wants. There's no logic to those things. You meet someone, you fall in love, and that's that. The heart wants what it wants. There's no war of our passions inside. What he says, you pursue it. There, you, you, whatever you feel, it is right. You follow your heart. There is no standard of morality. But listen, we, we know feelings. This is what Peter is saying. Feelings can feel very real and be very wrong. That just because you feel something, if it is not steeped and grounded in Scripture, it will destroy your life. And so Peter is saying, you have these passions. This is a fire that you face, not just exile and insults and persecution, but this is the fire from within. And you must learn how to face this fire, to handle this fire. And then lastly, so we've got exile, we've got temptation, we've got grief, the fire of grief. First Peter 1 Peter 1.6, again, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Paul or Peter twice in the letter talks about sorrows. He's talking about sadness, talking about things that that haven't happened the way that you want. And so you're experiencing, you're you're weeping and you're sorrowful. And so again, this is not hard to to relate with. Uh, we, we We can understand this. Many of us live in deep sadness and deep grief, recognizing that this life and this world is not it has not turned out the way that I hoped it would turn. And so he, these, are the, these are the fires. These are the fires that Peter talks about, saying churches, these five churches, believers today, we, we've got to learn how to fare well in the fire. And so that's the question is how, how do you fare in whatever fire you face? If it's temptation or it's insults or if it's sadness, how do you fare? You know, a fire can either be tremendously helpful and tremendously good, 
like if you're refining gold or if you like to do what I do, I like to sear steak on my green egg. Okay, fire can be really good, but that same fire can also be completely destructive, burning you to a crisp. So the question is, is what is the fire, whatever fire you face, temptation, sadness, exile, persecution, insult, what is the fire doing to you? We see how the same fire can do different things to the same person. If we think about cooking, my wife this year, in 2022, she has she has always been an amazing cook, but this year she's really decided to to be to make some of the most amazing dinners, um, and she has um, in the last couple of weeks she's made uh, cheesy poblano. I'm not supposed to talk about food, and I apologize. You're at your house though, so you can be eating while I talk. But she made cheesy poblano corn enchiladas. She just made that, and it was delicious. Sweet and sour chicken. She's going to make coconut chicken tikka masala. Whatever that is, it sounds delicious. Okay, but she can use the oven. She can use the ingredients that she has, and she can put it all together using the heat of the fire, and she can make this most amazing dish while at the same time, I'm in the same kitchen. I'm using the same oven. I have the same ingredients. I was making my kids a grilled cheese, and I burned it, and the kids just laughed at me and said, Where's, where's mom? And I said, Well, she's not home. Let's make some ramen noodles. But that's what fi- fire can be either tremendously helpful and beneficial, like searing a steak, or it could burn you to a crisp. And for us, we've got to think how can we handle these fires so that we're not burned to a crisp, so that we're not bitter, we're not cynical, we don't become lost but that we become stronger, we become refined, we become humble, we become caring. And this is what Peter's doing. So that's the world's long, long, longest introduction, but that's where we are. So knowing that's kind of the big picture is that we face various types of fire. And we want to be stronger. and We want to come through these fires refined. Now let's read the first five verses of 1 Peter 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for her salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I mean, what an introduction. And here's what Peter's doing. He doesn't He doesn't waste a breath. Like sometimes we want to skip over the introductions as if it's just kind of a formality. But that's that's not, I don't think that's what Peter wants us to do. He starts out this letter in the light of the forest of the whole book that we are going to face fires. He's saying the key to forging whatever fire you face is being grounded in good theology of who you are in Christ. That's what he's, he's doing. He's saying, here's your foundation 
for whatever you face. It is good theology. It is knowing who you are in Christ. Now, I don't know how you feel about theology. Maybe you get overwhelmed by some of the, the big words or some of the, the depth of some of the teaching, but it is, it is time to embrace theology, deep-rooted theology, because it's this theology that helps us face fire, fare through fire well. And so he starts with these prepositional phrases, these four prepositional phases that teach us this is who you are, and knowing who you are helps you fight these fires. And so let's walk through some of these prepositional phrases. First, he says in verse in verse 1 and verse 2, they are elected according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Twice we see this idea of election and foreknowledge. They aren't just exiles. What does it say? You are elect exiles. How? In what way? Verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In other words, well, this, this may be tough for you. Some, some, many struggle or wrestle with the idea of foreknowledge and election. But know that Peter is not introducing this concept to you or to these churches for them to struggle He's saying, let me give you a theology of place. Let me give you a theology of purpose, of what you're doing here. God, in all his knowledge from eternity past, has guided you to this specific exile. That's what he's saying. This, You are elected exiles. I chose you to face this insult and this persecution, and I am in complete control of this specific fire that you faced in your culture, in your job, in your neighborhood, in your relationships. I foreknew it and I elected it. I set it up to happen this precise way. And it's not just the fire of exile. It's the fire of our temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells us pretty clearly that that God doesn't let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. So God lets some temptation. He doesn't let other temptation. God is elect. He is electing our temptations. He's in charge of our temptations. He's in complete control of our grief and our sadness. God's not surprised by our sadness. He's not surprised in salvation. There's this certain idea of in, in the text of not just God electing and foreknowing what we face as in fire, but he's electing and foreknowing in our salvation as well. Talking about sanctification, talking about the blood, being sprinkled with his blood. And again, I recognize that this throws some of you off, uh, but here's what you need to know. This, this is a deep mystery, not meant to make you angry, but, but in a way, it, it is used for you to trust and to hold on to him. But you're not going to understand it. That we know that though he foreknows, though he elects, doctrine that shows up all through the New Testament, at the same time, the Bible makes it really clear that we are to choose him. Jesus says to the crowd, come to me. Come to me. That we have a choice that we can make, and we can make it right now for God to save us, to God to come and meet us. And if we ask God that right now, 
forgetting the foreknowledge, forgetting the election, if we choose to make the choice to ask him to come and to save us and to meet us, we can know he will always work through that request. And so it's it's a mystery that, that we make choices and God elects not just our exile, but our salvation. And we can rest and trust even though we don't fully understand it. You know, my, my van, our minivan, has been having transmission issues. And the mechanic was telling us all about the transmission. I said, listen, I, I, have, I have no idea how a transmission works. I said, but I don't, I don't need to know how the transmission works. I put, in, I put in the key, turn on the gas, I shift into drive, and my van goes. I don't know what a catalytic converter is. I don't know what a piston is. I don't know what a sensor is. I don't even know if those are parts in my car, but it doesn't. I don't, I don't need to know the specifics of these parts. All I know is that my van now works. And there's, this is how we should approach foreknowledge and election and God's sovereignty and God's control. That we don't understand the parts, but we know that God is in complete control that we make free choices that we are responsible for, and God works through those choices. But here's kind of the heart of the foreknowledge. God is in complete control of whatever you face. And that's comforting. That's very comforting. That no fire is too hot. That God is faithful. That He is our Father. That we're not going to be so overwhelmed by grief that, that it, we just wandered into it and it's going to be the end of us. But no, God elected it. That he is the foreknower. That he isn't surprised and that he can redeem whatever fire that we face. This is deeply comforting. This is rich theology that grounds us as if we're being tempted or we're overcome by grief or we're being persecuted. God elected it. Second, verse 2. I have no idea how long I'm going this morning. No timer, but that's okay. The second prepositional phrase, verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So we're elected exiles. We're sanctified by the Spirit. Now, we know that you you probably know the word sanctification, uh, but in the Old Testament, it was used to describe a pot or a utensil that was taken from normal life that was put in the temple and was given a new purpose and a new use. And what would they would call the pot or the utensil, once it entered into the temple, this is now a sanctified pot. This is a pot with a new purpose. Um, and so he's saying that when the Holy Spirit comes on your life, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are sanctified, you are born again, or the word that we sometimes use with sanctification is that you are in the process of becoming holy. Look at 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15. I think it talks, really, it it talks about the sanctification process. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who had called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. He's saying that this is another word for sanctification. It's holification. That's what the word means. He's saying by having the spirit as a part of your life, you will naturally work through the process of holiness, of sanctification. And here's what's, so, what's encouraging about that, that this is 
precisely the reason that we are in exile. Our holiness, according to 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15, is what causes the world to be upset, to malign us. And here's here's the the theological truth that kind of grounds us in whatever we face, is that now we know our exile, our struggle, our fire isn't just something that God controls, but he has purposed it. He has given us the spirit so that we could become holy and unlike the world. And what's naturally going to happen if we submit and surrender to the Holy Spirit is that we will be exiled. In other words, exile is a natural and good thing if you are submitting to the Holy Spirit and walking with Jesus. So this is, again, this theology, knowing that exile is good. You facing temptation and seeing the war is good because you are struggling to grow, facing insults and persecution in the world. It is good because that means you are living out of the Holy Spirit. It's embrace, embrace the exile He doesn't just know it. He is the cause of it. He is the goal of it. And so again, the sanctification of the Spirit, he's saying it is part of what it means to walk with Jesus. Thirdly, they are sprinkled. They are sprinkled with his blood. Now look at this with me. 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Again, we're still in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for sprinkling with his blood. I mean, what, there could be no more foundational phrase that sets you up to face fire than this, than this little phrase right here. You have been sprinkled with his blood. Now, if you're not a church goer or, you know, this, this concept of blood and sprinkling may be uh, you, you may not like the picture, but in the Old Testament, the picture of sprinkling blood was the picture of atonement. Okay, The priest would make a sacrifice for the people so that they could be made right with God. They would literally sprinkle blood as the means by which atonement can be made, that you could be made right with God through a sacrifice. Now, we... I think the word is actually, the word atonement is a really helpful word. In English, we see the word, the words at one meant, at one payment. It's the process, it's the payment where we are reconciled with God through the blood of Jesus. We are made one with God through atonement, a payment where, where two can be made one and we understand atonement the need for atonement in all of our relationships think about your relationship with your spouse or your kids uh, husbands if you uh, got home and maybe you maybe at some point in your life or in your marriage you've said some things that that were pretty awful or wives or children even we we say things to the people we love that can be very hurtful. And so let's just use husbands just as a hypothetical. We don't do it all the time, but let's just pretend. Husbands, you say something to your wife and it is below the belt. It is low. It is 
You know, you know that when it comes out of your mouth, you shouldn't have said it to your wife. Maybe you worked all day. Maybe you're hungry or tired, but you, you crossed a boundary and you say something to your wife that you shouldn't have. Well, how does your wife, how does your wife respond? Well, she, she distances herself. She separates herself and she should. You crossed a boundary. Now, after a little while, what happens? Husband, you get something to eat, you get a nap, or you cool down and you realize, I should not have done that. That was uncalled for. I was completely wrong in what I said to her. And so what what comes next? What do you need now? You need atonement. You need to be made one again. You have to do something, pay something to fix this relationship. And and husbands, sometimes we like to compartmentalize. We're, we're very, maybe not you, maybe it's just me, but we're quick to move on. Like how quickly we can be so upset and then all of a sudden be thinking about dessert or what we want to watch on TV or, and we've just moved on. But wives, very smart. They know better. They don't just move on. They need We need atonement. What is atonement? Paying a price that fits with the offense to make things right. Okay, Paying a price that fits with the offense that's appropriate so that there can be oneness. And so what is the payment for this situation that I've kind of described? Write this down, husbands. I know it. I do it all the time. Verbally saying, I am sorry. I was wrong. I have no excuses. Will you forgive me? That's atonement. Apologizing. Owning it. And it is the proper payment for something you've done verbally wrong to your spouse. And so most people say with, with God, if God was loving, won't he just accept and care for everyone, no matter what. But the question that we know in all of our relationships, well, what about atonement? Where is atonement? How does how does it how can you make it right with God? Don't you see? Don't we all see how we've trampled upon God with our life? How we've rebelled against Him? How we've been selfish and said and done awful things? I was talking to a gentleman yesterday about this. We're talking about life and death. And, and he said, we're, do- we're talking about death. And he said, well, well, I'm not sure that I'm ready, but I feel like I've, I can just tell him I think I've been good enough. And I said, well, what about atonement? Do you think your few good deeds can cover all the ways that you've been selfish and wrong and rebelled and made life about yourself and not God? I mean, Do you really think that works? It doesn't work in relationships. And he said, no, no, now that you say it like that, it doesn't, that doesn't add up. Because here's what we know. The more serious the offense, the more serious the atoning payment has to be. We're talking about, with the spouses, we're talking about verbally saying something wrong. But what about treason? What about murder? Right? The the atonement for these very serious crimes could be death penalty, could be prison, prison in life in prison, 
And so here's the question. What is the atonement? What is the at one payment that must be made for the offenses up against the eternal living maker of all things, God of the universe, the king and the creator? What is the payment that we can make? This is not just a verbal, well, I've been pretty good. I've done some good things. That does not match the offense of our sin against God. And here's here's the truth. How can you make this payment? What is this payment? And I'll tell you, you can't make this payment, but Jesus Christ can. And Jesus Christ did. He is the atonement payment for you, between you and the Father. And so to, to think that we can get rid of atonement and sacrifice and death to understand the love of God, we are we cannot do that. You can't understand God's love for you if you don't understand atonement. So it's not God loves and accepts everyone. It's that you needed atonement and the price was so great and you couldn't pay it and he provided it for himself. That's the love of God that we have in Jesus Christ. That's the sprinkling, the washing, the atonement, all of this. This, this theology of atonement, this, this, is what, this is what gives us the foundation for obedience. It says for obedience to Jesus Christ. Well, how can we obey? How can we follow Jesus even though we're facing fires of temptation and exile and grief? Because we understand atonement. We understand sprinkling with his blood. We've been forgiven. Our greatest need has been taken care of. That even though we are, we are not important enough, we're, we, we, don't, we don't earn it, we don't deserve it, that we, we have been covered. And so we can, understanding atonement, the sprinkling with His blood, the sanctification in the Spirit, God's foreknowledge, we can face fires. Because look, look at what He says in verse 3. And we're almost done. Hang with me. I don't know how long I've been going. I'll look. Okay, we got some time here. Look at what comes next in verse 3. And this is so important to see this progression. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That even in fire, even in exile, even in grief, even in pain, even in this internal war that we fail with, our own temptations, we can come out of here and say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is that possible? Because we know theology. We know theology. We know who we are in Christ. Look, at, look down at verse, verse 6. In this you rejoice. Well, what's the this in verse 6? It's pointing back to everything that Peter has laid down in this, in the theology of who you are in Christ, elected and foreknown, separated and sanctified, being worked on by the Spirit, sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. All of these things can cause you, even though you're facing fires and trials of various kinds, you can rejoice. And the last 
phrase that we're not going to have enough time to really look too much into detail with, but it's a great one, and maybe we'll come back to it next week, is, is verse 3. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I mean, what a picture of what God has given to us in the, in the truth of who Jesus is for us. Our lives have been changed. We've been given a hope that transcends whatever fire we face. And because of the hope, the living hope, that the, the hope of heaven that we have in the future secured for us by Jesus Christ, we, we can rejoice. And so here's, here's my prayer as we close, is that we would be stabilized and we would be grounded in the good theology of who we are in Jesus Christ. That whatever you face, whether it's temptation or insults, whether it's grief or sadness, whatever it is, whatever your trial is, that you would be grounded, that He is in control, that He is working through you and in you by His Spirit that he made the one, at one payment for you, sprinkling with his own blood, and that we can have hope, that we can have hope that transcends this life. And so it's my prayer that this morning, as we just look at the first couple verses, that this theology would ground us as we walk with Jesus no matter what we face. Let's, let's pray. Father, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for the good theology of who we are in you. What a gift, God, that we don't face fire on our own, but that you elect it. You're in control. You're working inside of us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And God, that that you've made atonement. God, that we couldn't make that payment ourselves but you sent Jesus to make it for us. And that's love. So we are loved. We are known. We are being worked on by you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God, I pray that this, these truths would ground us and motivate us as we face fire, that we would, would do what Peter tells us to do. He's telling us to bless you that we would be able to worship you, that even though we struggle with whatever it may be, that we can continue to worship you in whatever we face because of what you've done for us through the, the Son and the Holy Spirit and the Father. And so, God, I pray that this would be encouraging to everyone who's listening, whatever they face, whatever's on their plate this week, that they would find hope in you. We love you. We worship you. We're so grateful for atonement. That you have forgiven us. You made the payment that we could be one with you. And we thank you for that. God, I pray that you help us to appreciate that and rest in that this week. It's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us this morning. I don't know that we're even still working. Hopefully we are, or that would have not been good, but I hope you have a good week, that wherever you go this week, that you'd walk in the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, and we'll see you at church next Sunday, Lord willing. Um, 
but I hope you have a good week. Thanks. Uh-oh.